I don't know about you, but I love a good career change story. Like when people do not let themselves be defined by a title or an industry, when they can say, this is my core skill set, this is my offering, and they figure out how to pivot, man, it is so clarifying. Robin Arzon has one of the best pivot stories I have ever heard. Can we make a pact? Can we make, can we wear the fanciest stuff? I just like live. I don't want to just exist. I want to live. Will you live with me? From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Today, Robin Arzon, head instructor at the workout behemoth Peloton. She attacks your body fat while sharing intimate stories from her heart. A global leader in fitness, Robin did not even consider herself an athlete just a few years ago. Her journey to change her life started on an evening when she nearly lost it. I was held at gunpoint very randomly in a wine bar by a man who walked in with a gun and decided to hold that bar hostage. We talk about that surreal, traumatic night in New York, how jogging led to running, led to healing, and why she quit a very lucrative career that she enjoyed to chase something more. Aren't you worth more than easy? Like, your pain becomes power. The discomfort becomes future determination. Also, she's a new mama. We talk about the power of motherhood. This is the first interview for which I did an ab workout to prepare. I... (laughs) I love hearing that. What's up, hustlers? Robin Arzon here. We've got 10 minutes of core. Robin Arzon is a Cuban-Puerto Rican-American raised in Philadelphia. She's also a motivator. Put your phone away. Let's get to work. Put your phone away. Let's get to work. A writer, a new mom, and revolutionary leader in the world of fitness meets entertainment. Heavy enough for you to forget about your Today, she's the head instructor at the global fitness company, Peloton. But growing up, she was not much of an athlete. When she started her career, it was in a field as far away from fitness as you can get. That's right. Robin Arzone, your favorite coach, was a lawyer. So first, Robin, why law school? Were you following in your father's footsteps? I was definitely following in my father's footsteps. I always had in the back of my head that I would become a lawyer and Mm. um, yeah, did just that. And so when you got into law school, did it feel right to you? Did it feel like, yeah, these are my clothes to be wearing? Yeah, it did actually. And and practicing law did as well. Mm. I was the straight A student. I'm a Virgo. I love a to-do list. I love a syllabus. You know, Mm. I'm, I'm the kind of person who like orders the books before the summer before and like starts Mm. reading, you know, it's very much (laughs) my bag. So I really enjoyed law school. I love the intellectual rigor. I thought that the, um, the environment was just so conducive to like really planting seeds of curiosity and seeing what sprouted. Interestingly, and completely relevant to what her future career would become, Robin says her favorite class in law school was intellectual property. Mm, I like the idea of marrying creativity with 
rules. You know, like there's something mm-hmm. that lives in the stickiness of intellectual property that really is illustrative of kind of how I view my own skill sets and how I view my own creativity. It's like, I'm a lawyer who also paints in sweat. Just before starting her first year at law school, Robin was an undergraduate student at New York University. She was working as a paralegal intern. And one evening, a horrific experience forever changed her life. The evening was very uneventful until it was one of the most eventful evenings of my life. Mm. I was held at gunpoint very randomly in a wine bar by a man who walked in with a gun and decided to hold that bar hostage in the East Village. And that wine bar is still there. It's called Bar Veloce. Um, I pass by it on occasion, and I thank God I'm still alive. It was June 16th, 2002. Robin was 20. A gunman armed with three pistols, kerosene, and a samurai sword entered Bar Veloce, an Italian restaurant and wine bar in the East Village. He took everyone hostage. About 40 people were inside. The events, I mean, it's hard to even explain how it felt like we were there for years and it probably only lasted 90 minutes, but I essentially became... That's a long time. It's a long time when somebody has a gun to your head, for sure. I became a human shield with the perpetrator was kind of standing behind me. I was the human shield. The NYPD, you know, ended up, you know, gathering outside and I was literally the person talking to the NYPD, talking to the, the perpetrator and really trying to like diffuse an incredibly alarming situation. Um, How do you mean trying to diffuse? What were you doing to try to diffuse? Well, I remember thinking I have to stay calm. Like if I am hysterical, then that's just going to elevate the intensity of this. So I tried to stay, speak really um, calmly and actually in a familiar way. The gunman's name was Stephen Johnson, a 39-year-old barber from Brooklyn. Just before the hostage takeover, he'd mugged and shot a man on the street. The man stumbled into the restaurant. Johnson followed him in. He fired a shot into the air, shot the man again, and, according to reports, yelled, quote, white people are going to burn tonight. Johnson was black. He then ordered a woman to bind people's hands with zip ties. He doused everyone in kerosene. He flicked a lighter as he talked with police on the phone, reportedly telling them he wanted to kill as many people as I could. He at one point held Robin by her hair. She did the only thing she could. She tried to make a connection with the gunman. He must have perceived that I'm Latina and he started speaking to me in Spanish. And I was like, okay, anyway, I'm going to familiarize myself with this person. I will. So I responded to him in Spanish. um, And I was just trying to, I was literally asking him, you know, about his life, about his family, about his, you know, trying to humanize myself. So he would realize what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, really the, the hostage takeover ended when a really incredibly brave woman named Anne Margaret saw that the perpetrator was struggling, holding me, holding the gun. He was holding my cell phone um, and jumped him essentially from behind because she was sitting in a, in a wash basin and was kind of elevated and was able to, to, to the, make the right call at the right time. Wow. And then NYPD was able to come in and Exactly. I mean, it all ha- it was probably a matter of seconds when all of this transpired, and it was just one of those opportune moments. 
Wow. Well, God bless her and you. Robin, when you've talked about that experience, you explain that the trauma from it lived inside your body. And eventually, the way you began to heal from it was to become a runner. Is that right? That's absolutely right. The impetus for picking up a pair of running shoes when I never was an athlete at all growing up was to run through the pain. Dive into that. There was probably a year from the incident to when I started running. And in that time in between, I went to talk therapy. I felt, quote unquote, okay. You know, on paper, clinically, I was, quote unquote, okay. And I was also so distracted with senior year and graduating and going to law school I was like, oh, okay. I think I'm physically, it felt like I was physically walking around with a weight vest. And for me, um, it felt like it was right in my sternum, you know, just like right where my diaphragm needs a little bit more room to breathe. And I found that breath on the runs. I actually became breathless in order to, in order to find the breath. And so how did you find it? How do you go from, oh, there's a physicality to this trauma to I'm going to sweat it out this way. You know, I wasn't an athlete growing up, so I didn't have that connection of, um, I don't think I was very connected to my body at all. Mm -hmm. And one day I just thought, I have no idea why, but I had my car keys in my hand and I was about to get in the car to go to class. And I thought, maybe if I just, why don't I just like walk there or jog there? Hmm. And I put on shoes that were in my closet and I, (laughs) and I did that. I have no idea why Uh I did that, but I kind of answered that, that call or that curiosity and I think it was about a mile and a quarter to campus. Hmm. Which is a long distance to run if you're going to, you run. I think I walked jog. You did what I've been doing these days. I got you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was the beginning. That was the start. You know, I signed up for a 10K and that <laughs> went, that was a really tough, tough race because I did it on pretty much zero training. Oh. I actually didn't even know how far a 10K was when I showed up. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> to the race start. So uh, I was very uneducated, but um, that was probably a good thing. We're Americans. We don't need to know conversion. It's yeah. Okay. I was like, yeah, yeah. Well, what is it? Two miles, three miles? Yeah. Nope. Um, the journey was, very, was iterative. I mean, it's like many of our journeys. And I just started clocking finish lines. And mm. the catalyst really for signing up for my very first marathon was a breakup. Oh. You know, I had broke up with my, a boyfriend in my 20s. And I thought, okay, I need something. I need something to distract me from this. And that marathon was really my first, like, this is a training program. You have a running coach. These are your training teammates. And I was also raising money for the MS Society at the time. And my mother lives with MS. So it was a very encouraging, positive distraction. Distraction from the haunting omnipresence of the hostage incident. You see, it didn't end with the gunman arrested. There was a criminal case that spanned years. Robin the Runner, now a first-year law student, was also a key witness who had to go to court, testify, talk to detectives. This stuff doesn't just get wrapped up in a bow. You know, I tried to keep you know, because I'm literally studying crim law while at the same time I am involved in a criminal trial. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to be the super astute, learned 
witness. I just wanted to say this is the truth of what happened to me. So I actually think it made me much more compassionate because you're reading these case studies of like why the canon of the law is what it is. And I thought, oh my gosh, I wonder what that, what did that rape victim feel like having to look her perpetrator in the eyes? You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. but I also, I kind of, it went into into a cocoon a little bit. Like I really tried to shield myself from the news. I tried to even shield myself, honestly, from other um, folks who were involved. And it took years. I mean, there was a trial and then an appeal and then a retrial. Hmm. And so as you're trying to shield yourself from this, you're running because you viscerally feel you need it. What was happening that it was helping you through the trauma? As opposed to just being a distraction, right? The times that weren't a distraction were actually on the runs where I was forced to face my inner monologue. Which was? Which was like, I can't believe this happened to you. Like, who who am I to live? That You know, there's a little bit of like, everyone survived that hostage situation, mm. thank goodness. But there's a little bit of like... Survivor's guilt? Uh, I, I, I Survivor's guilt was on the tip of my tongue, but I actually yeah. don't think it's survivor's guilt. I think it's more truly like, why am I alive? How does one find agency? How does one feel powerful? Like, true, these were questions of like, could it happen again? I'm, I'm at the gas station. Is someone going to come up right now? How do I not live in fear all the time? And it was, it was on the runs that I, that I really felt like I was translating that feeling of powerlessness to feeling more powerful and that every single run, it was like, if my body can do that, if I can will myself through space like that, I can handle anything. I knew that I am here for a reason. And it's to speak my voice even when it shakes and to be a leader and hold space for folks who are trying to find their power. I just didn't know that my, you know, that movement would be such a crucial tool for that. What about movement? What about getting into your physical body unlocks emotional power, emotional strength? Mm, Well, movement is fertilizer for the brain, right? So I found that right from the beginning. It was like that allowed me to like understand my inner monologue. Am I proud of it? Is it helpful? Is it strong? Is my inner monologue even kind um, to myself? And that was really, really powerful, more powerful than talk therapy was, frankly. And then I also found that the hustle that that is elicited by the run is confidence is a side effect of that hustle. So the, you know, whether it was like approaching, you know, a teacher after class, whether it was the confidence to apply for, you know, a law firm job, whether it was the, you know, confidence to go on a date with someone like those are, those all are little moments that your, your spirit really does remember all these little micro victories that happen in in a physical realm, in a workout. Every door. So shout out to the hustlers who committed to this 10-minute core workout. I am Robin Arson. Jason Love, baby. I began doing races 
10Ks, then half marathons, nothing longer than that. But something I noticed with myself is I visualize it's like there's a switch in me that wants to flip, but I always stop before flipping it. It's like I never, it's like I tell myself I want to push myself harder and harder and harder, but it's like I feel this resistance in me, this protectiveness in me where it's like, no, don't push yourself too hard. Mm. Mm. Is there a question? Because I have thoughts on that. <laughs> oh, no, that's no, I, I want, I want you to give me your thought. I want you to flip my switch. I mean, I would ask a question related to that. Aren't you worth more than easy? Like you, your pain becomes power that the discomfort becomes future determination not to suggest that like everyone needs to kill themselves in a hundred mile race and only good workouts are the ones that are leaving you redlining. You know, you know, I, I don't believe in arbitrary burnout, but I do revere the rite of passage that comes from getting incredibly uncomfortable. I have ritualized discomfort in my life so consistently, literally every day I get physically uncomfortable. Um, There are many, many workouts every single week that I'm nervous to do. And I love those moments. I seek out those moments. I don't actually find them joyful. Like in the moment when you're about to hit a race distance that you haven't achieved before or a speed or an intensity or a, you know, whatever that next stimulus is, Mm -hmm. The stimulus will flip the switch. Invite the discomfort in as a friend and interrogate that discomfort as you would a guest. I feel like like you have a level of faith maybe that that makes it possible for you to push yourself so hard. I don't think it's that uncommon. I like the idea of elevating everyday heroes, normalizing everyday, amazing, incredible, fantastic, gobsmacking achievements. And they don't have to be like, so-and-so was pulled from a burning building. I mean, of course, that's heroic. But what if it's the bravery to ask for a raise? What if it's the bravery to create a boundary around a toxic situation? Mm-hmm. Bravery is our baseline if we choose it to be. And I think it's better to choose bravery as our baseline before we're forced, forced to have bravery as our baseline. I mean, that feels like a very direct line from the experience you had at the wine bar to, to becoming a runner. 100%. (laughs) There's no, uh, I can't unravel. I mean, they're totally interlinked. Robin became a serious runner. She went from walking slash jogging to 10Ks, marathons, and ultra marathons. I'm excited. We're at the start of the race. We're about to go in. It's muddy. You know what? Every step brings me closer to the finish line. One race she ran in the Florida Keys was a full 100 miles long. She knew the distance before she signed up. She finished in 29 hours and 12 minutes, 20th place amongst women. 
There's one relatively shorter race that caught my attention, and I needed to talk to her about it. Tokyo 2015. Oh, God, that was such a hard race. Yeah. You get to mile 13, 13 of 26.2 miles in this marathon, and your insulin pod fails. And so to explain, you're a type 1 diabetic without insulin coming into your bloodstream, you could die. I mean, that's not an overstatement. No, yeah, that's very real. And you decide when your insulin pod fails as you're running and you're only at the halfway mark, I'm going to keep on running. Mm-hmm. Robin, it's not my place, but I was like, why? Don't. <laughs> Stop. I don't approve. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I know. I've done risky things. Um, you know, it's funny because my insulin pop started, there, an alarm ha- goes off when it like, you know, either whatever reason it fails. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I'm beeping. I don't want like security in this race to think it's some bomb or something. And I remember ripping it off my arm and throwing it in a trash bin and just thinking, okay, well, here we go. You see, you have 13 more miles. Let's see how this goes. Yeah, but that's what I mean about the, I'm like, be more protective of yourself. What are you doing? Well, yes. And I'm, I'm curious about what I'm capable of. And for sure, I slowed down for sure. I was like, not, you know, I wasn't trying to, I was listening to myself. Right. And I, mm-hmm. and it felt, it was, I was so lethargic and I felt like crap and I know why. Right. Cause my blood sugar was creeping up without insulin. Um, but that didn't feel as bad as the idea of stopping. Hmm. And I was okay. I ended up being okay. You did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that reconciling of crossing that finish line and feeling like, yeah, on the one hand, I guess I could be proud that I made it, but like, did all, was all of this for nothing? You know, that woe was me. And that, you know, I feel like catalyzing, turning why me into try me is a, is a really cool magic trick. And athletes do that all the time. Yeah. I mean, I'm in awe, but I'm also just kind of like, is every finish line worth crossing? I don't know. I haven't, I haven't crossed that bridge yet. I mean, honestly, now as a mother, I might make a different choice, right? Uh, But it was the right decision with the information I had then. Let's pivot a little from Robin the runner to Robin the high-powered corporate lawyer. She graduated from law school at age 23. She went to work for a big Manhattan firm. It was during the subprime mortgage crisis. And she did not feel like a miserable, lowly associate in these early years. I wasn't the attorney who was like, I hate my life. This is terrible. Screw this big Mm. law. Mm -hmm. I was surprised that I I enjoyed it as much as I did. Mm. And I was practicing during subprime. I mean, my gosh, it was like the Madoff years and things were very real, you know, in the business world. But I I felt like, okay, this, I'm supposed to be living this. Like it felt like I actually was in a groove, Mm -hmm. but I also knew that I was counting down the hours until I could go for a 20 minute or hour long run, you know, in Central Park. Mm -hmm. And I thought, is this divorce existence what I'm supposed to be living? Like, do you survive gunpoint to live for one hour a day? It made it did. It started to make less and less sense. Hmm. Um, 
I've been an overachiever my entire life. Was I going to be an underachiever as it related to my own joy and, and happiness? Hmm. Um, and it took a few years for me to answer that for myself. But once I asked myself that question, I couldn't really like unhear it. That's a very direct challenge to how most people live their lives. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I feel like I'm I'm covertly using this point of the conversation to continue a debate I have with various people in my life. (laughs) It's like basically what you just said. I'm going to be throwing it in a whole lot of people's faces. Okay. (laughs) So to be clear, then no, you didn't hate your job. You didn't hate corporate law. You just noticed that you were more passionate about what you did in your off hours than your work hours. Right. And, you know, we all have hobbies, things we like to do. Right. And so what I had to answer for myself in a, you know, multi-year quest was like, can I actually pay my rent with this running thing? How the heck can I do this and not have to move back in with my parents? (laughs) After the break, Robin describes the moment she knew her side hustle had to become her main hustle. That was when I really left. That was the transition point. That was the inflection point. And she explains how you can do it too. This is Art of Power from WBEZ Chicago. I'm Arthi Shahani. Hey folks, your host Arthi here. We've gotten such great audience response for Art of Power. We've decided to start a newsletter for this community, an exclusive place for invites and access to myself as well as guests featured on the show. Subscribe at wbez.org slash AOP newsletter. Nearly one-third of American workers under age 40 are thinking about career change, according to Washington Post poll. Robin Arzon knows all about that. And now we're going to get her seven-step program to change careers, as interpreted by Arthi Shahani. I made it seven steps. Step one, find your tribe. At that point, I had started to run with a crew, a running crew in New York City, and it was very motley crew of artists and fashion designers and DJs and Lower East Side kind of icons. And I knew, oh, wow, there's we're writing a story in our lived runs, right? Like this is something special that I can speak to. And athletic brands actually started paying attention. And some of the biggest athletic brands in the world started to connect with um, people like myself. Step two, take a sabbatical from the daily grind. Robin asked her law firm bosses, can I take off for a bit? She wanted to work on her Tumblr called Shut Up and Run. They said yes. It was an unpaid leave of absence where I still had my job and I was able to return. In those three months, I was pitching, you know, articles. I was was trying to meet journalists and editors and I was creating, you know, the framework for my book and trying to meet literary agents. It was just like I was knee deep in 
can I be a quote unquote blogger? I didn't even know what that was. Step three, answer the question. What do you really want anyway? And what are you willing to give up for it? I was almost entering my eighth year as an associate uh, at the same firm. And the question was like, okay, great. You're welcome back. We would love to have you back, but are you in (laughs) or are you Mm going to not do this law thing? Um, And then the 2012 Olympic Games were happening Hmm. two weeks away. And I thought, I have to be there. I just have to be there. I don't even know what, I just have to be there. Um, And that was when I really left. Step four, show up to the thing you care about. For Robin, it was the 2012 Olympics in London. For you, it could be a baking contest. You don't got to have all the right gear, by the way. I had a cracked iPhone. My laptop was like ancient. I mean, I wasn't prepared for this. I wasn't prepared technologically. I wasn't prepared financially. I just showed up and I slept on my friend's couch and I just immersed myself. I was reaching out to people like PR agents for Team USA. Mm -hmm. Just anybody who could would listen. I was like, I love running. I want to talk about running. I want to write about running. I run. You want to talk about it? (laughs) (laughs) Someone noticed, damn, this woman, Robin, knows social media. She knows running. She can tell a badass story about athletes and she's got personal style. So this person offered Robin a job back in the U.S., running the social media account for a huge brand, Nike Women. Which brings us to step five, just do it. You know I had to say that. Leap into the new job in an entirely new industry, even if it's not the final destination. I did that for a few months until I realized, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to tell somebody else's story. I wanted mm-hmm. to tell my own in partnership and in collaboration with a brand. Hmm. That's a very big realization, Uh, Or was it? Oh, it was huge. That jump felt more scary than leaving law. Because I had had for Mm -hmm. a few years thought, okay, you're going to leave law. You just don't know how or when. Mm -hmm. It was landing the second job and then leaving that only a few months later that felt even more scary. And how did you decide that, that, oh, I want to go from telling the stories of professional athletes who are Olympic level to telling my own story? It just, I stopped having moment, those moments of flow. I would be having, spending my days kind of creating decks and writing tweets and doing things for the brand and still counting down the hours where I could do my run, post to my blog, mm. engage with my community, which was, you know, nascent. It was just starting at the time. It was just the beginnings, humble beginnings. But people were listening and paying attention. And I thought, oh, I have a voice here. Like, I, I do think that I can create space for this community in a way that hasn't before. I show up at races with a black cat eye, a red lip, and gold jewelry. And I do it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> whatever that runner is supposed to look like. I didn't feel like I looked like one. And I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to show up and hold space for this, I want to do it as myself. Many, 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 many people have thought about, oh, can I turn myself into a brand? And like, let's be real. Not everyone is really made for that, right? What told you, yeah, this is the right direction? I I mean, I became obsessed. I became obsessed with, 
the workouts. I became obsessed with the community, with documenting it, with social media. I mean, and only, only one, one, one very small marker, but it was relevant at the time was that people, you know, I was amassing followers. People were paying attention. People were engaging with me. You know, mm. brands were reaching out. I stopped exp- accepting a pair of running shoes as payment. And I said, okay, I'm a consultant. And I learned from my billable hours that like my time is valuable. Mm. So I just made up a number and I said, okay, this is what it costs to have coffee with me. Period. What did it cost? <laughs> my initial yeah. consultant fee two fifty an hour. Oh, for coffee. Yep. And they pay for the coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Step, where were we? Six. Step six. Don't be afraid to break up. Robin said goodbye to the Nike marketing job after six months. And I cannot emphasize this enough. She had her ducks in a row. She was her own business with an array of services and marketing and training. She became a trainer too. This was not some blind leap. I mean, I did the classic like pro con list. I had many, many lists, many lists. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. And I remember writing a note in my phone in 2011 about what my ideal job would be. And it was actually, it was pretty much my role at Peloton. It was Mm -hmm. like pretty much everything I'm doing today. It was that. And that became my North star of like, okay, then how do I make that happen? How do I make someone pay for that? Yes, you can. Eight more seconds. I know this is challenging. Peloton, Peloton, Peloton. Honestly, aren't we worth more than easy? Three, two, one. Step seven, the final step. Envision your dream in detail and find the vehicle to manifest the dream. That is what Peloton became for Robin Arzone. Keep in mind, it was not yet the raging success we know today. Peloton was an upstart. Robin was a fitness instructor who felt like her reach in a physical classroom was too small. I was teaching at a studio in Union Square and I thought, okay, well, there's 20 bikes here. Mm. I feel like we can do better than that. Mm -hmm. And so you wrote a letter to the CEO of Peloton? I reached out specifically saying, I want to be an instructor. I read about your company. We need to work together. And I went in and I met with John Foley, the CEO and the co-founders. They were all in an office in Chelsea. Just, it was like only 20 people at the time. Um, And they had just literally just started hiring instructors. Robin was one of the very first instructors Peloton hired. They did not yet have the massive studio with cameras and production teams creating the eye candy videos we know them for today. People didn't really know about Peloton yet. I mean, they were still trying to hawk bikes at, you know, this is John Foley still showing up at the Short Hills Mall to like get people to listen to him. You know, this was was early, early. Uh And so at the point that you step into Peloton, do you and he, John Foley, already see, oh, this isn't just a fitness studio. This could be a TV studio that brings fitness and entertainment together. Is that vision really clear? I always got that. Hmm. You know, people ask, like, can you believe this has happened? And I'm like, hell yeah, I can believe it. Like, hmm. we built it. And explain why you saw that. 
Um, I just understood. I, I think because I was so immersed in social media and I did understand the, the connection someone can have with a stranger on the other side of the world through a screen. Hmm. I and people just reaching out literally from Russia, from random places, just because they saw my little Tumblr or saw my social media presence on Instagram or Twitter. I thought, okay, if these people are pouring their hearts out to me just because I posted a selfie after my long run on Saturday, if they're working out, literally working out with me, that it's going to be, we're going to light fires. We really, you know, we co-created what it means to be in front of that camera and and hold space and, and guide millions of people. Robin Arzone graduated from instructor to a new role, vice president of fitness programming. We spoke with one of your fellow star Peloton instructors, Cody Rigsby, and he says that he's been very inspired by your example, specifically your example as a business leader. Robin has really always had this ambition of using that law degree, using that um, drive to not only be talent, but to also have her voice heard within the business sphere of building Peloton and really giving voice to the instructors and letting our perspective be known and be seen in the boardroom, in the C-suite, in the spaces where people are making decisions. (laughs) Cody, I love him. My God, he's family. Oh, he's family. Um, That's, it's amazing to be recognized for that, honestly, because trying to translate the more creative piece of what we do that, you know, where entertainment is meeting business isn't always easy. And I have found myself at the nexus of that often. Mm. And then when I was promoted into my vice president of fitness programming role, it became evident that I could be that I could not only be the advocate for the instructors, but also then try to build bridges for the instructors and understanding this is why we do what we do in order to scale. This is, these are the processes we need in a studio. Now, one of the most high profile fitness gurus on earth, Robin is about to turn 39. This spring, she and her husband had a baby named Athena. One thing that I was wondering about is you are an athlete, um, a different kind of athlete from, say, Serena Williams, but definitely like her, a woman whose public persona is wrapped up in how she looks and how strong she is. And, And I wondered, were you at all afraid of what pregnancy would do to your body, to your career? I mean, sure. I'm, I'm hyper aware of what, of that all the time. I mean, it is, how could I not be? I was worried about the physicality of like, can I actually teach this? Can I continue to teach this? But I wasn't so much worried about pregnancy itself and, and how that would be perceived. Cause I knew that I had a passion, if not a responsibility to shift the paradigm around being a pregnant athlete. Mm, what do you mean? I got pregnant around the time that um, 
after, you know, Serena's daughter is a few years older than me, but she had already come out with the HBO documentary kind of documenting her challenges of being a mother and being one of the best athletes in the world. Uh, Allison Felix was super public about her challenges, you know, birthing her daughter and, you know, the the challenges she she had as a black woman and and receiving treatment. Mm -hmm. And the, I thought, okay, there's like a tornado going on right now about something that shouldn't even be an issue of whether we can be paid and maintain our contracts as a pregnant athlete. So I I wanted to show that, show the world, like, yes, I'm still wearing this pee on my chest Mm -hmm. and I'm eight months pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, I still am a leader in this space and I'm, you know, I happen to be pregnant. Peloton family, I am Robin. I am so excited to welcome you to this 20-minute prenatal basics class. And then also specifically to the pregnancy conversation, I wanted to show and model that we can still slay it. I'm pregnant with my first baby. I'm pre- and postnatal certified. And I actually had some of the most amazing workouts of my life when I was pregnant. And it was all done really responsibly. And, and, I, and I was very, very proud about the fact that it wasn't, I wasn't operating from a place, place of ego. I was operating from a place of capability. And that made me feel really good because it was like, okay, this, I'm not here with anything to prove to you, but I just want you to come along. If you feel good too, then let's do this together. One of my very best girlfriends, who is also a fitness junkie, this woman's amazing. She does full splits both ways and is like the star student in any workout we go to. Uh, her name is Avide Musavian. She is a huge fan of yours. She's one of the people who told me about you very early on. She had a question for you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to play it. I've got a new mom question. I'm a new-ish mom. I have a one-year-old. You're a new mom. How has having a baby changed your workout outlook? Ooh. Um, so in the beginning it was really humbling. I mean, rebuilding yourself after carrying a human is no joke. Um, but I'm on the other side of that. And now I feel like I can handle anything. Like I really, I literally think Mm. during my workouts, I'm like, I made a whole human. You think I can't run the 30 second sprint? (laughs) Like I made a human, like there were two heartbeats in my body. You think I can't lift this weight over my head? Please. I love that. It reminds me of something Trevor Noah once reflected on. He's like, why do we say don't be a pussy? A pussy is one of the strongest things you could ever be. Strongest. We grew a whole organ called a placenta just for birth. Like who? That's magic. Are you kidding me? Robin Arzone has run thousands of miles since that hostage crisis that left her needing to heal. What did you learn about how power works that you didn't know when you started? I didn't know that movement could beget power. Like, I didn't understand that physically moving my body could make me feel in my brain (laughs) that I was more confident, more capable more brave. Um, I truly didn't. I I thought I know how to study. I know how to read the book about it. Mm -hmm. I know how to download the podcast about it. And I think becoming an athlete made me understand there's a point when results follow obsession and results follow doing and that hard work can beat lazy talent. For someone who is listening to this right now and who might be at a point of transition, 
What's your message to them? Mm. Can you identify a why that matters more than the discomfort? And then decide how badly you want it and proceed accordingly. (laughs) Robin, you have motivated me to keep working on my core strength, (laughs) my running. I hope to flip that switch in me and to embrace pain without fearing, feeling the need to be protective of myself too much. Um, Thanks for all of it. Thanks for talking to me. This has been great. (laughs) My lessons from Robin Arzone. One, exercise with your body. Physical activity changes your mind state. It's a scientific fact. Two, practice before you leap. If you want to make a dramatic change in your life, run some experiments to test out whether the future you want is within reach. Three, embrace discomfort. Find the thing you're passionate and scared of doing and see it through even when it hurts. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, Paloma Moreno-Jimenez, Hina Shravastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If this episode landed for you, made you stop, feel, think, anything, hit subscribe. Leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. You can also join our new newsletter. Go to wbez.org slash AOP newsletter. And let me know what you think directly. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Arthi411, A-A-R-T-I 411. See you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.